Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert to buy now. The Kakadu Plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a Kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a gagillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and hypergig with details. When you think about the future, what kind of technology do you envision? Whatever the future holds, artificial intelligence will undoubtedly be at the heart of it all. Join Graham Class as he hosts Season 2 of Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast, and hear from the minds transforming healthcare, retail, entertainment, personal computing, and more with the help of AI. Tune in every other Tuesday and explore the latest technology that's changing our world today and creating a more accessible tomorrow. Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From UFOs to psychic powers and government conspiracies, history is riddled with unexplained events. You can turn back now or learn the stuff they don't want you to know. A production of iHeartRadio. Hello, welcome back to the show. My name is Matt. Our co-host Noel is on an adventure. They call me Ben. We're joined as always with our super producer, Paul Mission Control Deccant. Most importantly, you are you, you are here, and that makes this the stuff they don't want you to know. Uh, Matt, this one is for our fellow film buffs in the crowd, and it's something uh, you and I have talked about in the past we talked about it with mission control a little bit off air um i i hope this isn't revealing too much but uh as longtime listeners know you yourself as well as paul have backgrounds in the world of film how i got my college degree shooting some video for a couple of professors yeah when you get a degree like that at least here in georgia at georgia state university check it out Um, You do a lot of film history, a lot of just studying film, analyzing film, uh, understanding how it's made and why it's made that way. And this topic that we're covering today is not something that was in the curriculum in 2003, 2004. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And it's, but it's something that was in the cards. It just hadn't reached this point of uh, conspiracy, I would argue. Mm-hmm. So if you, like us, are film buffs, then you've probably heard about a growing phenomenon in the world of cinema. Film now, despite COVID, is going international like never before at a, at a continually accelerating pace. And also, if you have been a fellow conspiracy realist for, for a good amount of time, you are probably, I would guess, concerned about the dangers of censorship. And we're reaching a paradox point here, fellow cinephiles, as films of every genre and level from blockbuster movies to independent critics, darlings, as they spread across this planet like never before, they're also being actively censored in a way that has not ever occurred on this scale. They're being kept from the largest single viewing public in the entirety of human history. No caveats, no asterisks. That's what's happening. Today, we're traveling to China. So here are the facts. Uh, first, <laughs> first things first, whenever we do episodes like these, like the, um, the Great Firewall, which we did earlier, and uh, stories about uh, the Uyghur population in Western China, we always, uh, Matt and me and sometimes Paul, talk about whether or not we're going to be able to get through customs in mainland <laughs> PRC. But, uh, you know, sometimes we're joking, sometimes we're not joking. But it's a, it, it is an important question because China is huge. By any metric, China is huge. Uh, when we talk about population, China is the biggest dog on the block. Uh, in our one of our previous episodes, we quoted the population at 1.3 billion. Now, just a few years later, it's home to 1.402 billion people. And a lot of those folks are just like us. They love movies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, especially American movies. When it comes to American culture, just there's a cachet. It's I, I think it has something to do with the uh, freedom that we have historically enjoyed here, right? Uh, you could do anything in America. And when you're watching a movie that's based in America or is American made, there's that same kind of anything could happen. Uh, excitement, I would say. That exists there. And culture has been one of America's biggest exports since films have been a thing. And then, good God, television comes along. That's a whole other thing. Really, any American media, uh, we just export that stuff and we're good at at putting little bits of propaganda in there, as you know. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. There is a valid argument to be made. And I ruffle feathers when I say this sometimes, but ever since the post-World War II economic boom, two of the most powerful exports of the United States have been culture and war. Uh, And they both have done a lot for the U.S. at the expense of others. Uh, So yeah, there's power in this. All culture presented to an unfamiliar audience is inherently propagandistic. Right. It's like a uh, it's like a macro version of a person's social media countries and cultures Mm. show you what they want you to see. Right. And (laughs) this this is uh, this is strange because the effect has been huge. But again, it's it's fairly in the long span of things. it's, It's fairly recent. And in the case of U.S. films in China, it's even more of a recent thing. China didn't really open up 
officially to American films until around 1994. Warner Brothers, uh, through a series of like nepotistic negotiations, was able to air a film called The Fugitive in China. And it did oh, pretty great well. Great film. Great film. Yeah. Yeah. It, I, I liked it. It did pretty well. Uh, old WB made about $3 million US, and that is not big money to them in 1994, but it is considered a good sign for the future. And then just three years later, about three years later, 1996, 1997, uh, Hollywood immediately screws up hard, at least the, in China's perspective. Yeah. Uh, two movies, Kundun, K-U-N-D-U-N, and a little thing called Seven Years in Tibet with old Brad Pitt. Two films that were, let's say, not appreciated. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it has to do with the way the films portray Tibet and stuff going on in Tibet. And we've talked about this before on the show. Uh, but we, You know, we haven't really gone into full detail, I don't think, Ben on the the complications that exist in Tibet versus China um, and just historically what's been going on. But uh, yeah, these movies, they, they did not take keenly to. No, and for uh, people familiar with that situation, the official perception of the Chinese government for that sentence you just said about Tibet and China, for them, it would be like saying, you know, what about that situation between Wyoming and the United States? Like, yeah. the, the Chinese position is very much that uh, Tibet is an autonomous region, but very much part of my mainland China. To say otherwise is anathema. The same applies to Taiwan, which we'll get to in a moment. Uh, this is This is, just to be clear, Chinese censorship boards. This is not us saying saying any stance of our own there. This is just the reality of the situation. That's just so, one China policy. Full that's, stop. <laughs> that's what it's called. That is what it's called. So at first, the studios didn't think this would be the biggest deal ever. They didn't have geopolitical considerations in mind when they were making these films. They just thought they were good stories. Uh, they knew that market and population trends indicated China could one day be a, a big source of revenue for for cinema, but not quite yet. And they said, they sort of thought, you know, it's not like we're going to make a bunch of money there right now. Anyhow, uh, this assumption, <laughs> would, yeah, this assumption would over time prove incorrect. As of just 2020, China became officially the largest film market on the planet. And a big part of that growth was the pandemic. There were a couple of, of different factors here that moved the timeline. So before the pandemic fully got into swing, there's a research firm called Ampere Analysis, A-M-P-E-R-E, -E, if you want to look it up. Uh, they projected China's film market uh, would overtake, would overlap and overshadow the U.S. film market by 2022 uh, this year. And now it expects China will remain the number one market in the world for films and this kind of media indefinitely because of the population and because the U.S. theatrical market, the market for actual films and movies, uh, is declining. And it's attempting to recover from the pandemic and losing the ability to physically go to the movie theater 
But we'll see. I mean, that's going to be one of those things. Maybe there's going to be a crazy resurgence in people going back to the movies. I know I've done it a couple of times, uh, but not the way I used to. Yeah, and a lot of people had similar experiences. The The thing is, there, there are several intervening variables here, right? The country of China, as, as a film market, is probably going to be making around $13.7 billion a year in 2025, and the U.S. will be a little under $8 billion. These are still billions. There's still a lot of money at play, more so than, you know, most of most human brains can, I would say all human brains can adequately comprehend. Just think about the numbers you may have heard in the news. These these have been international news stories. The amount of money that some of the large Marvel movies have been raking in and some of the other large franchises, we're talking uh, like Jurassic World. We're talking profits in the billions now, not the millions uh, a movie that was a smash hit would make several hundred million uh, not that long ago. And now a billion, at least a billion, is almost a benchmark now for some of these major movies that get worldwide distribution. Exactly. And there are other intervening variables at play. Like first, yes, we mentioned COVID. It hit both countries very hard on multiple levels. And uh, and. China has been doing some pretty extreme things to tamp down COVID, especially in urban populations. Their theaters were not unscathed either. Uh, China had 70,000 theaters that were shut down for months. All the theaters in the U.S. were shut down for a while. But to your point, Matt, China seems to have bounced back faster. And now Hollywood, that's just, I'm using metonymy here. I'm just saying Hollywood to indicate all film production in the U.S., wherever it's based. It's hoping that these huge films they spend a lot of money on can help them recover those lost profits with the help of Chinese audiences. But there's another factor. They're going to face a lot of local competition. The government of China recognizes the power of culture uh, and information wars and propaganda, so they want to bring their own voice, their own narrative uh, and perception to the globe. And that's why more and more of China's box office hits are local productions, domestically filmed and created nowadays. And this only accelerated during COVID, when there were uh, many, there were far fewer Hollywood films being released. Just overall, and this is mm-hmm. part, yeah, this is part of a larger plan. We're not even to the crazy part yet. These are just the facts. No, nope. yeah, we got to introduce uh, this journalist that I'm I'm quite impressed with, named Eric Schwartzel. He is the author of a book called Red Carpet, Hollywood, China, and the Global Battle for Cultural Supremacy. Get it? Red Carpet? Huh? I, I see you, oh, Eric. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. See you. Oh, oh, snap. <laughs> so he, he's... Uh, yeah. And that book, uh, based on that book, he wrote an article or several articles, I think, for The Atlantic that were using as research for this. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So shout out to Eric Schwartzel. Uh, he's saying in his book... Uh, one of the things that we just highlighted, he said his belief is that the government of China has watched the machine of Hollywood, you know, basically sell America as a concept 
to the globe. And now that government wants to do the same. They want to leverage that power of propaganda to continue expanding their presence on the international stage. And we pulled a couple quotes from him, um, especially the ones that I think are striking because of their uh, certitude. So he says, quote, it comes to the point where even on some of the biggest films that make tons of money around the world, like a Fast and Furious film or a Marvel superheroes movie, getting into China and making money there can mean the difference between profit and loss. Yeah. Yeah. When you fund your movie for several hundred million dollars because you packed it full of some of the biggest stars that exist on the planet right now, and every scene has the most insane special effects you've ever seen, and it looks amazing and you feel great when you watch it, uh, it still costs several hundred million dollars. Right. <laughs> so if you if you don't get, uh, you know, an extra one point, let's just say an extra 600 million people to watch it or even, you know, 300 million people in the population of China watching it, that's still going to make up for uh, that potential between profit and loss. Yeah. Man. 300. I mean, think about it. If you just get 340 million people watching it in China, then you have you have done the equivalent of getting every single person in the United States to watch your film. <laughs> Like it's a numbers game and and you know the the stories may be fictional but those budgets are real so this is uh this yeah. is a big big deal and this means that hollywood is increasingly dependent upon getting airtime in china it's no longer a nice thing that can help an executive's year-end bonus it's the way the company may survive and to many people you know, and I see the validity in this to many people. The argument is that's just business as usual. You know, you go where your customers are. But unfortunately, that's only part of the game. There's a complicating factor here. You can't, for instance, just go crack some international distribution deal and get uh, stuff they don't want you to know the movie playing in theaters across Shanghai and Beijing. Instead, you have to go to the ultimate arbiters of your film in that country, China's government censorship regime. You have to gain from them the privilege of traversing the great firewall of this information war. And this is where the troubles begin. We're going to pause for a word from our sponsor. Maybe it's something from the Chinese tourism board, and then we'll tell you more. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On demand, tempt to hire part-time or full-time. You name the position warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. 
With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house. And I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. Here's where it gets crazy. All right, China is home to the largest film market on the planet. But not just that, it's also home to the largest censorship regime on the planet. At least one of the largest censorship regimes. I think it is the largest now. It's certainly the most sophisticated. Like, it it is scary good. Maybe we should talk a little bit about that before we get straight to the film. Oh, yeah. There's a political scientist named Gary King who decided to dig deep into this thing. Uh, He looked at Chinese state censorship with two landmark studies where he was looking at social media. And he concluded that China is the, quote, most extensive effort to selectively censor human expression ever implemented. Whoa, that's strong. Strong words there, Gary. Uh, (laughs) But it does seem to be that, at least with some of the stuff we've been looking at this week. There really are internet police. We joke about it sometimes as being a thing. You know, that was such a running gag for a while here in the early 2000s when we were having conversations, Ben. Mm -hmm. But the internet police in China... It's a real thing. We're talking about 50,000 people, potentially, or roughly, let's say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's not just them. They're working with other Communist Party members, uh, who hundreds of thousands strong, potentially 300,000 strong. And that's not counting the employees that then private companies employ to also do this kind of thing. Uh, because private companies have to employ certain people to keep tabs on what the company is doing. And basically, 
they're the go-betweens between the company and the sensors. It's crazy to yeah. think about. Yeah, it's a huge network. It It is a vast, vast enterprise. And I want to give a special shout out to just my personal contacts on the Chinese mainland and in Taiwan, as well as our fellow conspiracy realists who are either Chinese nationals or based in the country as we speak. You won't hear this episode. <laughs> well, not officially, but, uh, you know, you might have a very private network that helps you tune in. A very Cheers. private Cheers. network. <laughs> so yes, yeah, so our matey. Uh, anyhow, the uh, this this is true, and there are two points that stand out in Gary King's research. First, he said the infrastructure of the censorship regime is astonishingly effective. This means that if if, for instance, um, Paul and Matt are talking about something that might be, you know, put a bad taste in the censor's mouth and they post about it on social media. Oh, I then, got one. OK, go. Yeah. Let's say uh, let's say we're talking about this special little meeting and training that occurred in 2008 when a large group of film students and aspiring social media uh, I guess I guess they're celebrities in China. They came over and they got firsthand training from the United States Hollywood film industry on how to export culture and how to build stories that focus on that and export it to other places. And if that were objectionable, if that left a bad taste in the censor's mouth, then what you would find, just as uh, King and his team found, is that those posts that are objectionable have a 99 plus percent chance of being removed completely within 24 hours. So there is a great eye on 1.402 billion people and anything they might post. But there's a little, little bit of good news because the same, the this first study that it it found that the government appears to give people a little bit of wiggle room with online dissent. We're talking some trash. You got it. You got a little bit of wiggle room there. Maybe everybody has a bad day, etc. What they really crack down on is stuff you're describing: organization, grassroots yes. movements, collective action. It depends on where we were talking about that and how open of a discussion we were having. Were we trying to get other people to talk with us? Were they talking with us? Were they sharing? Yeah, then it becomes a real issue. Because as we've talked about, there are penalties, real legal penalties for doing things. And I can't remember the phrase off the top of my head, Ben, but it's like rabble rousing. It's like an actual yes. offense that you can get jail time for. I think that's right. I think the translation is rabble rousing. So you keep your rabble sedated. Folks. Yeah, and in one of these Atlantic articles exploring King's work, uh, we find in an interview about these studies that he believes there are two reasons for the latitude, the little bit of wiggle room with not being 100% happy. He says, first, if you allow some criticism, it's kind of like uh, an escape hatch, right? It lets off some steam and it keeps that dissent from growing more violent. People feel like they are somehow satiated by being able to just get it out. And then second, this leniency is also helpful to those in power 
because then you can figure out what more than one person has a problem with, right? So you can. It's you, a comment you, card box. Yes. Yeah, that's true. The internet is a comment card box and people are reading what you write. So be very careful in that regard. Like, um, it reminds me of the old joke on forums like Reddit. You will obviously, I keep eyes on a lot of uh, conspiratorial and fringe related forums. And one of the things that always cracks me up is the meta conspiracy that every time someone comes up, in a forum and says, hey, what are some conspiracy theories you think are true? Uh, the idea is that they are being posted by the FBI or some of the alphabet boys just to figure it out. Do you know how, I don't know if that's true. Do I you, love it. I hope it is. Do you know how many times we've made posts like that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, no, it's true. Well, this, okay, so we're saying this is a powerful thing. It is real. Uh, it is ideologically objectionable to some people, but for the government in power in China now, the PRC, uh, the idea is ideologically necessary. This is seen as a preservation move for the stability of the country as it stands. And it applies to film as well. We got to introduce you to something called SARFT, the State Administration of Radio, Film, and Television. SARFT, despite sounding like a distant cousin of, of the Noid, is actually super powerful and pretty Orwellian. They control the content of all media broadcast in China, film, TV, radio, the internet, satellite. Since 2018, all the films that would one day be shown in China, domestic or foreign, are first evaluated by this thing called the CFA or China Film Administration. Uh, at the time, a lot of the numbers I saw said the staff was somewhat small. We're talking about 30 people. They've got a bunch of different backgrounds. Some of them are, you know, from the film industry, some are from the Communist Youth League, the Women's Federation, sort of a the rest are a, kind of a charcuterie of government departments or people from government departments. And they have various areas of expertise and authority that they focus on. There is a pretty small group that handles international co-productions, just like three or four people. Why are we guessing at this? Well, the inner workings of SARFT are kind of a black box in many ways. They're highly secret, uh, which has got to be in the past that had to be super annoying to American filmmakers. Uh, there's lots you can read about this. Again, we can't recommend that book in the Atlantic articles enough, but uh, just having that black box that you have to put all of your ideas into as a filmmaker, or someone who's going to try and create media and get it in China, um, not knowing what it is, that's got to be crazy uh, difficult to even wrap your mind around. But you think about in the U S there are sensors that look at media. There's the MPAA and other organizations like that in the U.S. that look at content and decide if it's, you know, uh, too profane or if it's profane at a certain level, it'll get a rating or something. It'll be prevented from being shown in certain places. Uh, but often, well, I guess there is other content stuff, right? Anything that's sexual, uh, anything, what? that's really it. Is it too sexual or the words naughty or is it too violent. Yeah, or depictions, increasingly depictions of uh, addiction, 
including things like mm-hmm. cigarette smoking, might set your rating a little bit more mature. There was one film, uh, it's about a tornado, maybe it was Twister or something. They got dinged on ratings for depictions of violent weather, which I thought was hilarious. Yeah, true story. I do not remember. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, we're we're gonna talk. Uh, sure, it wasn't Geostorm. <laughs> we're, we're gonna talk a little bit more too about about the differences here. But I love the way you're setting this up because yes, countries, uh, for the most part, the big film producing countries all have these kinds of rating systems. And they're they're made with good intentions, just as China's government would argue its own censorship board is made with. You know, uh, they're doing what is good for the public. And if you are a parent, then you totally understand, especially when your kids were younger. It's helpful to know if there's going to be some wild, traumatic stuff in a film. You don't want to have to explain the movie seven to a a seven-year-old child. You know what I mean? You don't want to go in there without having at least some knowledge of what happens. Again, But their age is in the name. But their age is in the name, yes. So despite the fact that for a while the censorship regime, this body of rules, was a a black box, Western studios and filmmakers quickly learned, acquired a spider sense of what to avoid. They know that the government doesn't hesitate to punish studios that step out of line, that address topics China finds objectionable or embarrassing, or uh, the the phrase they use is topics that distort history or distort the truth about China. Uh, they also will clamp down on any events. And again, these are works of fiction for the most part. Any events that highlight things the government does not want the public of China to know. This is stuff that you can already imagine, like um, the idea of Taiwanese independence uh, or topics involving demonstrations in Hong Kong or ethnic minorities like Uyghurs. Uh, we can we can also tell you the extent of punishment here. So those earlier examples, Matt, you and I were talking about seven years in Tibet and Kundun in 1996-1997, the government of China did not hesitate to turn those experiences into examples for all other Western filmmakers. I'd say all other non-Chinese filmmakers. They made it clear that not only did they not care for the production of these films, whether or not they got released in China, but they were going to punish the studios behind them for making these films in the first place. So Disney releases Kundun. It's kind of an interesting story, too, because they inherited it from Scorsese. Sony releases Seven Years in Tibet. They're both parts of massive, these studios, I mean, are both parts of massive corporations with interests that are far, far past movies. Uh, a good illustration of this, this is very common in corporate America, would be the comedy series 30 Rock, which is awesome. In 30 Rock, Alec Baldwin plays a stylized version of Lorne Michaels. And Alec Baldwin's character, Jack Donaghy, runs NBC, but he really wants to run GE, which is like the parent company. And so there are numerous episodes where his character is calling in the writers of this show and saying, look, I understand you guys do a comedy sketch show. Microwaves are very big right now. Okay, so we need to make sure that there are a lot of microwaves in these sketches. This happens 
this uh, something like this, full disclosure, we're an anti-censorship show, uh, full disclosure, Matt, remember when stuff like this used to happen to us during the discovery days on our little show? I don't remember anything particularly like this, but I do remember a little thing with mermaids once. Oh, yeah. Mermaids. We fought the good fight on that one. Uh, <laughs> I think we did. We got away with it, too, uh, for now. Uh, but there are things like, um, I think it's fair to say this. It's been long enough. There are things where uh, there would be some larger initiative in a corporation like um, Punkin Chunkin was one. It was... This seasonal, this seasonal television event where people would build trebuchet, uh, trebuchets, and they would launch pumpkins to see how far they could chunk, chunk the pumpkin, pumpkin. Uh, This is still indoctrinated, (laughs) and so various. I forgot about Shark Week too, Ben. And Shark Week, yeah, yeah. Trying to make my old car show about sharks for like a week every year. That was. It was a good creative exercise. Anyway, so so what we're saying is the Disney that we're talking about, the movie studio, is a smaller part of the bigger thing, the actual mouse. And the part of Sony that's releasing Seven Years in Tibet is also a smaller part of a larger entity. China knew this, so they didn't stress going after the kids here. They didn't really stress too much about going after the studios. They just cut them off. But then they escalated and punished the parent companies. For a while, they banned Sony and Disney altogether from the entire country of China. Just no ifs, ands, or buts, no loopholes. In fact, in the case of Disney, Michael Eisner and his team, Michael Eisner was CEO at the time, conspired. This is a small conspiracy, a much larger one. They conspired to actively make this film, Kundun, unsuccessful. They, they purposely sabotaged it because they didn't want to be seen as just rolling over and going belly up for uh, the censors of a foreign government because then it would look like they were anti-free speech and they were disrespecting the legacy of an auteur like Martin Scorsese. So instead, this is what Eisner does. They say, we're going to release this movie because we said we would. We contractually have to but we're only going to put it in four theaters, literally one, like four theater screens. We're going to give it a very small runway of airtime. And then we're going to say, whoops, ah, this movie did a terrible job. So it doesn't make sense for us financially to uh, distribute it further. That's, that's what happened. It's an honest mistake. That's showbiz. And that wasn't enough. So get this. He flew. Michael Eisner, one of the most powerful CEOs in this field, he flies personally to Beijing and apologizes to them, to the officials involved. And he says, this is a real quote. You can look it up. He says, the bad news is the movie was released. The good news is nobody saw it. Yeah. Yeah, that's, I mean, if you really wrap your head around what that means, the head of one of these giant corporations flew to China and said, hey, uh, we're sorry about that. Won't happen again. Please don't punish our parent company, my company, any further. Uh, all the other major corporations, especially large conglomerates that also own movie studios, took real notice. They're like, OK, it's 1996 is 1997. Uh, we can't do this again. We're not going to do this again. 
so we need to be we need to basically keep a close watch internally on both the writing of films and the films that are trying to come out. And we're going to have to tamp down a little bit on some of the content that our creatives are attempting to put out. Mm -hmm. Those troublesome creatives. Uh, And this is, this leads to a situation which is kind of bizarre. You know, uh, one mark of respect you can give Hollywood, despite its many, many imperfections, it's uh, often unclean lack of ethics, et cetera, et cetera. One thing you can say in as a positive about the U.S. film entertainment industry is that it doesn't it doesn't really hesitate to speak truth to political power structures in the U.S. It's up for grabs, you know, and you'll see filmmakers and screenwriters and directors, and even sometimes some suits who are saying they feel that it is morally correct to call out bad behavior and tell the unpleasant truths, which I, you know, obviously I I think Matt, you and I both have great respect for that, but those same folks are increasingly taking the opposite approach to the government of China because they will get smacked down for doing so. It has clear and immediate financial consequences for the short and long term. In 2012, these two up-and-coming politicians, one from U.S., one from China, meet up and they crack a new deal for foreign films. You'll recognize one as former Vice President Joe Biden, and his counterpart is a hotshot named Xi Jinping, who would later go on to become the president of China. Just the way Biden went on. Hey, the tale of two presidents. Yeah, there we go. Just the way uh, Biden went and became president of the U.S. I shouldn't say it that casually. I don't think it was like a hold my beer situation. You know, there's a lot of work to become president. Anyhow, so this happens before they are the ultimate authorities in, in their respective countries. And they negotiate this expansion of a deal that will allow a quota of 34 foreign films into the Chinese market per year. And uh, they also up the percentage of ticket sales that the studios will get. They used to get 13% of ticket sales. Then they started getting 25%. This was a big win, but it was a dangerous win. And I don't think everybody realized it immediately because it guaranteed a ton of money, but it also guaranteed a dependency, something like a, an, an addiction. Hollywood became increasingly reliant on these profits, which meant they were increasingly concerned with making sure that they could get through the gate of censorship. Uh, and this is where I, I think we should go back to um, – your excellent description of the MPAA. The MPAA, the rating system here in the U.S., is primarily concerned with what could be seen as age-appropriate. We've got G for general audience, P for parental guidance suggested, PG-13 for parental guidance suggested, and hey, maybe your kid should be like at least 13 or older. Uh, and then, of course, you've got R, and then uh, we were talking about this a second off there. Restricted. Yeah, restricted, which was so exciting, you know, to sneak into an R-rated movie. Yeah, I did it. Whatever. Uh, but the, like, what, and then there's the other, um, what was it? We checked with Mission Control. Oh, uh, NC-17, I know, is a rating, at least that I've seen commonly. And then there's also the unrated version of certain films that you can find. But it's usually a special release 
and not in a theater, mm-hmm. usually. Yeah. So, yeah, that, I mean, that makes sense. But if you look to China and their system, that those distinctions of, like, maybe this is the level of uh, caution you should take before viewing this film, it doesn't exist, at least not in the same way. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, exactly. Because... Sure, there's the idea of protecting innocent eyeballs from depictions of things like graphic physical violence and so on. But the primary goal is to protect the perceived legitimacy of the current government, uh, to protect the status quo of domestic society and culture. So this means that the Chinese government, through things like SARF, has the ultimate power to decide what is or is not appropriate, regardless of a potential viewer's age. So it's a very different set of priorities, and it's a very different execution of those priorities. It really is. Ben, just before we take off here, I want to talk just a tiny bit more about that added 12% of profits that U.S. studios or Hollywood studios see from sales in China. We, we talk on this show a lot about corporations and capitalism and what it means to have uh, increases in profits on a year-over-year basis or a quarter-by-quarter basis and how that, how that translates into the success or massive failure of a company. If we look to something like Netflix that very recently in the news – in one of their quarterly quarterly reports showed that they had fewer people using their service, like fewer new subscriptions coming in on a a monthly basis. And their stock price fell by billions and billions of dollars. Now, the same thing with all of these privately owned corporations, some of them traded, I believe, uh, at least the parent companies are traded in through the stock market. If you are adding to your line, a potential, extra 12% in profits that goes up one year or one quarter or whatever it is, then you got to hit that thing again, at least that, or you're going to show your investors are going to lose their confidence in you. So it really is, as Ben said, a leash or some it's, it's a very firm control mechanism that the state of China then has on Hollywood. Absolutely. Yeah. And well said, Uh, But how, okay, so let's maybe do a thought experiment and imagine that you and I are making stuff they don't want you to know, the movie, hopefully with a more creative title. And uh, we know that it's fine to, to air it in the U.S. or wherever, but our big crown jewel will be airing this in China. For some reason, we look at each other and we both say, you know what, dude, that's the perfect audience. For this, for, for this film in particular, uh, we're going to have to figure out how to navigate that sensor process. So we're going to pause for a word from our sponsor. We're going to put our filmmaker hats on, and then we're going to return and see how we would try to tackle this. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. 
$25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs. On-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position. Warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With our easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. So visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Terminix. Terminix can't help you solve the world's biggest mysteries or take on alien life. At least not the ones you're thinking of. But they can help take care of pesky invaders in your home. Like the ants in your kitchen, the roaches under your sink, and the termites in the walls. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. No matter what type of pest it is, they can Terminix it fast with personalized pest care that puts you in control. Their expertly trained technicians may not know true crime, but they know their local pest pressures. And with customized plans tailored to your specific situation, you get everything you need to not just get pests out, but keep them out for good. Between their speedy service, caring technicians, and over 95 years of experience, it's no mystery why they're trusted by homes and businesses everywhere. So if you have a pest problem, don't stress it. Terminix it. Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com to book online today. We're back. We're back. We're now, um, we're now, what kind of level of filmmaking should we be at for this experiment, Matt? Do you want to be like, are, are we like, um ingenues kind of james cameron level we're james cameron okay cool so we can make blockbuster movies as an excuse for us to use a submarine we're at that level oh oh dude yeah we made avatar okay and now we got to make avatar 2 but the problem is there's some stuff in there that uh china seems to think we're heavily implying is china you know it's a metaphor right it's not it's totally not but they think it is so we got to be real careful. <laughs> right, right. And due to my due to my um color blindness, which is a true thing, there's a lot of red stuff in the cut and we got to figure out what that is. And then we've also got stuff they don't want you to know the movie coming out. So, uh luckily we have some help from a guy named Robert Kane. 
Robert Kane has been making films at this point for decades in China, and he has an excellent explanation of this on his blog. So Matt and I and Paul as our, let's say, let's say Mission Control is like our studio head money guy. And so we have to make sure that we don't get on his bad side and remain profitable. So we are heavily incentivized to make something work for Avatar and for Stadidwick, the movie. Uh, the, we, we know that the principal aims of their censorship system in China are, from their own description, to promote uh, the Confucian understanding of morality, to maintain political stability, and to make sure that everything is socially harmonious. We want, if we're the censors, mm -hmm. then to the most extreme degree possible, we want everyone to appear to be on the same page about everything. Yeah. Well, but but that's pretty easy, right? We just send them the final cut, you know, or at least a rough cut of the film that we're working on, and then they'll give us notes, right? And we'll say, okay, we'll try and work well, on Well, uh, at some part of the process, that's what we do. But first, we have to send them the script. Before we film, we're, we're oh. like, well, I guess we could be filming depending on our production timeline, but we have to start with the script and there will be a three-part process. So we send our screenplay or we could send our finished film, but we'll see why that's risky uh, to this censorship board. The board has a uh, little more than two weeks, 15 days to respond to us, but you know, it's bureaucracy. So it, it's not always going to be within that 15-day period. I mean, there's only 30 people working there, Ben. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and we don't know how they felt about the first Avatar. So the authorities will respond with some comments about things, but often also suggestions, revisions. Here's how you alter the film to meet our checklist of taboo subjects. And then we, as the filmmakers get the opportunity to go back to our lab and make those modifications. You know, maybe let's, maybe let's take the Statue of Liberty out of this shot, or maybe let's change uh, this conversation about uh, torture, right? Even well, if it's yeah, uh, yeah. one throwaway line, uh, someone says, well, they tortured them like people do in China. Mm -hmm. Then they would say, okay, yeah, that's got to go. <laughs> Well, there is this, we'll definitely cut that, but there is a scene that it's like at the climax where there are a bunch of these tanks rolling down uh, this hillside and then one of the avatars stands in front of it and it, it had just been shopping, I think, maybe grocery shopping and uh, it's just standing there and it's defiant of the tanks and I really need that to be in, Ben. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so they'll come back and they'll say, um, come on, guys. Come on. You know, you know they, what they, you're doing. They, they might be pretty cool with us. You know, like the cool teacher catching kids smoking in the parking lot after school. Like, hey, you're better than this, guys. Real disappointed. Okay. And then we would, we would come back and say like, okay, well, you know, Matt and I really need this in. Uh, are there other machines we can use? What, or, or like animals. What if they're like elephants or, you know. The original yeah, tanks, well, what if, elephants. <laughs> yeah, well, what if, yeah, what if we take the tanks out and now it's just a bunch of people and they're all holding umbrellas? Would that be okay? Right, right, right. We're just pitching these back and forth and they will review the changes and they might say like, 
guys, seriously, what, what did you expect? Or they might say, okay, this works because I know you, you know, and I liked the first avatar. Uh, so if, if this whole process though, uh, goes to pot and goes sideways the first time around, then we can go back and start it again and try to try to have a mulligan, one more additional review. And this can happen because, again, the filmmakers and their studio heads, the Paul Mission Controls, are aware that there are potentially billions of dollars of profit on the line. And to be really clear about these censors, these folks aren't here like, they're not a writer's room punching up scripts. They're not adding cool tags to jokes or zingers or puns or whatever. They're not always talking about product placement. They're focused on telling you as a filmmaker what you can't do. So we can tell you some of the red flags for censors. Maybe we shouldn't say red flags. Uh, they, they include stuff like depictions of sex and violence. They don't like a lot of obscene language, a lot of religious depictions. Uh, they don't like superstition as well, nor gambling, nor uh, vices like too much drinking, drug abuse, or uh, criminal activity, especially if it seems to condone criminal activity. And this is where Kane has uh, a really interesting observation that I don't think a lot of us in the U.S. are aware of. There's something else that China is very big on censoring. Yeah. Superhero stuff. What? They don't, they don't, they don't like Dr. Strange, apparently. Or any of the multiverse stuff because they don't like time travel. What the heck? We got <laughs> to have scientific facts behind all of our plot points. What, how are we going to make Avatar, Ben? The second one, obviously. Well, yeah, they say it needs to be based in scientific fact. So also ghost her out, uh, which is a shame because yeah. I love ghost in any story. It doesn't matter what it is. Uh, and But what if it's like Sixth Sense where you don't realize it's a ghost the whole movie? And we just that, uh -oh, spoilers. don't send in the last like two pages of the script. <laughs> it ends up kind of a cliffhanger. You guys are cool with that, right? And then we'll get that same. I'm I'm kind of I'm increasingly uh, warming up to this idea of like a friendly bureaucratic censor who likes us, but his hands are tied, and he's like, "Come on, guys, it's not the whole script." Come on. <laughs> and, and it's like you know, it's like 4 a.m. over here. I have a family. <laughs> I have to go to sleep. And we're like, no, 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 no. go for it. Go for it. Uh, so, yes, it's true. Also, uh, obviously, anything that seems to in any way impinge upon the reputation of the Communist Party or leaders of the Communist Party, so pretty much any leader from 1949 on, uh, that is prohibited uh, with prejudice. And there's something else that's really funny. It stuck out to me, and I, I think a lot of our fellow fans of old martial arts films will clock this. Mm -hmm. You might be saying, hang on, I watch a ton of old Chinese action films, and they break these rules all the time. It's true because there's wiggle room for films that were either filmed in the past or films that are depicting stuff before the revolution before 1949. So the uh, if you see a film set in like um, some ancient dynastic past and there's a lot of fighting, that's viewed differently from something set in the present day with a lot of violence or, you know, any of those other taboo subjects we named, which is, is pretty startling, you know? And that's why 
that's why you see a lot of blockbuster films in China that are set in the ancient past. Because, you know. Or in 1947. Or in 1947. Uh, Maybe somebody tried to get really close to it and they were like, this entire incredibly violent story, anti-government story takes place in one day, December 29th, 1948. (laughs) It's about ghosts. Uh, So, uh, (laughs) I don't know. Someone may have tried that. but, But, like, we know... So we know that uh, Western filmmakers started through, uh, through experience learning the different uh, pain points or the different controversial mm-hmm. subjects, and they got help every so often by censors who would provide guidelines that explain their judgment. Uh, in 2008, they codified a list of no-nos. We paraphrase these above. You can see the full list on Robert Kane's blog. He calls it kind of a, a set of commandments, but it doesn't stop there. So let's say we have gotten stuff that what you know the movie and Avatar 2 through the censors. Somehow we made all, like we turned the tanks into elephants. We replaced troubling color palettes and all that junk. And now we're filming. And because we are James Cameron level, we are going to film in the real location. Minimal green screens for us. We're going to China. That's where we're filming both of these movies. And that's where we learn that there are going to be spies on set. Yeah. I just had a flash of, I don't know if you remember this movie, The Great Wall that Matt Damon made uh, years ago. I can't remember when. It was in the 20 teens. Uh, but it was called The Great Wall. And I remember being flabbergasted by it. But I do imagine that they shot much of it uh, on the actual Great Wall. Sorry, that's all I'm mm-hmm. thinking about. I was thinking about that too. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, let, let's go back. I'm sorry, Ben. Oh, no, no, no. You know what? While we're here, what we should also say, we haven't mentioned this yet. Uh, and this is something I know everybody has seen if you're a film buff. Uh, it's not always a matter of cutting out content or revising existing content. You'll see films, uh, Marvel's done this too, uh, and Fox have done this. You'll see films where additional content is added for the Chinese audience to put more stuff related to China and Chinese culture in the film. Like, uh, in, oh, in so the Great Wall was a whole different movie, and then they just added the Great Wall and called it that. <laughs> they just added Matt Damon. Uh, <laughs> the original cut, he's not in it. Uh, no, no, no. And, and Matt Damon's a great actor, to be fair. Uh, mm-hmm. In X-Men Days of Future Past, for example, the studio added over 30 minutes of footage, including cameos from like a, a very high-level Chinese star, Bing Bing Fan, and then a Chinese boy band. They added it in because they... They know there's a big audience. And if people are super fans of that actor or that boy band, then they'll go just to see that part. So there, there's a clear calculus here. I, I don't have proof of this, um, but I have a, a theory. You know, I loved, I loved, loved, loved the film series Pacific Rim, which is yeah. just giant robots and kaiju fighting. Don't stress about the plot. Don't stress about the holes in the plot. Uh, I, it's a popcorn film. I was there to have a good time. The special effects are amazing. And, uh, in the sequel, it's nuts because, uh, us studios, right. Uh, didn't 
really care too much for Pacific Rim, but it made a killing in China. And that meant that's what I was going to say. Yeah. Even though, even though for a long time, studios, I would say to the detriment of the art, studios were incredibly myopically focused on reboots, right? Reboots, sequels. Uh, let's let's take something that was doing well in the 1980s and let's just make it again, you know, because it's safe. Yeah. Uh, so they were a little bit adverse to new ideas. Got it. Oh, dude, totally adverse to new ideas. But I want to stay on Pacific Rim because I, I happen to just read about this one, Ben. I know you're a big fan. I still haven't seen any of the Pacific Rim movies, by the way. And I need to. I know I need to. Oh, you're going to have but, fun. Oh, I'm going to. But. It's the leash we were talking about or the the necessity to have the China market because that movie cost a hundred. The first one cost one hundred and ninety million dollars to make. And then it made back around one hundred million dollars in the United States market and, and other markets. But then you add uh, China's market to it. It actually makes money. And now it's profitable. But if they didn't have that and if they didn't do what they needed to do to get it played in China, they would have lost $90 million. Yeah. You can't do that. Yeah, exactly. They made more money from that film in China than they did in the entirety of North America. So Mexico, Canada, and the U.S. Uh, they made like over $110 million in China alone. Uh, and then that was enough, even, even for these guys who are super self-assured and confidently saying, you know, reboots are where it's at. That made enough that they had to pay attention and they said, okay, well, yeah, it's time for a sequel. And because of the nature of the success of the first one in China, Pacific Rim 2, Pacific Rim Uprising, leaned into it hard. Uh, that's why there's a, there's a review that I quite enjoyed of Pacific Rim Uprising in Vulture in 2018 when the film came out by Emily Yoshida. And the title simply says Pacific Rim Uprising might be the most China bait studio release yet. Uh, it's, and if you look at it, if you look at it, what's interesting is, you know, there are entire plot lines that occur in Mandarin. Charlie Day from Always Sunny in Philadelphia is in this film. Again, he was in the first one too. And he is trying Mandarin. There's a whole running joke about him trying to speak Mandarin well. And then Chinese stars, domestic Chinese stars, get pretty meaty uh, roles in this. Uh, and then when I was watching, it's funny because you'll see like a, a Chinese military official who's in a lot of pivotal scenes uh, and he doesn't have a ton of lines, but there will be protagonist principals in the story who are talking and he's just kind of in the room and the camera just looks at him going like, Oh yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-uh. No, no. Okay. That kind of stuff. Yeah, exactly. Those facial expressions. <laughs> and the idea was the idea I think was that he was the, he was the spy on set and they put him in. <laughs> they were like, they were like, actually this dude's really cool. Did you know he can juggle? Can we have him? He's not going to juggle on air, but I think we can get him on the camera. Uh, anyway, so. Look at that mug. Yeah, so uh, there are spies on sets. It's not uncommon if you're filming something in China. And uh, Kane himself, Robert Kane, has a story about this, which is pretty human and understandable. His production 
made an honest mistake. They weren't trying to sneak in subversive stuff, but it got back to a government official and the government official, the party official was about to shut down the production until he went to him and essentially said, look, we didn't mean to do anything. We have no problem with changing it. Uh, that's like totally our bad. Please just understand that maybe we were a little thick about this. We did. We didn't know what the deal was. Now we know. And Hopefully we're cool. And the government official, also being a human being, said, yeah, no, no, okay, I believe you. Okay, guys, all right, you rascals. Uh, but he, this led him to make a really interesting point. He says, yeah, the system's draconian to a lot of people outside of China and within China. It feels like stamping down on free speech. But we have to remember the actual people, those 30-something so censors, who are making these decisions, in a lot of cases, they're just good old film nerds too. They, they want to ha- see movies. They want to help get this stuff over the line. In some cases, and I haven't talked to these people personally, but in some cases, I think it's reasonable to assume they might be kind of bummed about their jobs. They might be like, oh man, that I, I can see that ghost on screen from the script and it's just, we can't do it, guys. <laughs> I'm so tired of sarfling the Garthak all the time. <laughs> exactly. Still, that's that's the way it stands. Censorship is the law of the land. It's the rule of the day. And it may be honestly something dangerous in the near future. You're gonna you're seeing already increasingly odd things in modern Hollywood films. I want to go to Stanley Rosen, uh, University of Southern California political science professor. He studies China's film industry extensively, and he said it's escalating in the sense that censors are much more direct in banning films outright instead of tampering or asking for scenes to be removed. But that's not the dangerous thing. The dangerous thing is that these censors are also apparently asking for oversight on versions of movies for audiences outside of China. So let's say let's say Avatar 2 is only going to be released in France and stuff they don't want you to know is only coming out in uh, Malta. Why not? There's this idea that just for the film to exist, not just in China, but in the world, the entirety of the international release has to meet these censorship requirements. And what does this mean for you? That means that even if you are not in China, if you have never visited, you have no plans to visit, you don't know a lick of Mandarin, you might be watching not the film the studio wanted to make, but the film China allowed it to make. Uh, keep a close eye on Marvel and Disney in this regard. Yeah. there. You may have seen this in the news or at least on social media. Uh, think about the Statue of Liberty in, oh, I don't know, a Spider-Man movie you might have seen lately. Anything that is going to show a major nationalistic monument, something that is going to represent a different country or great pride in a different country that is not China, might be looked down upon by these censors. Because, hey, look, if I'm if I'm in China, I'm protecting the way my citizens feel about our country and pride in our system. I don't want people getting all happy and excited about democracy and the United States that's not good for us. Uh, it's weird to think that now that you've got this control mechanism within with your profits, you can actually get Americans who are making films for America to have to change their plot points. 
inside America because of your desires. Yeah, possibly. That's, I mean, that's the, that's the aim. Uh, the new Doctor Strange got in trouble for what was seen as a nod to Falun Gong. Uh, if you want to know why that's a big deal, check out our earlier episode on Falun Gong, uh, which will explain that beautiful Shen Yun reference. Uh, and to, 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 other, to some people, this is a cautionary tale of the danger of Orwellian big brothers, uh, but to others, it's bigger than that. It's much bigger. It's an information war. It's a trade dispute when you think about it. You know, we can talk back and forth all the live long midnight about the importance of unstifled artistry and free speech, but these companies making these films, they are for-profit entities. And so while uh, an average moviegoer can say, hey, what's, what's the big hubbub about having two girls kissing on screen briefly, those companies and those studios are saying in conference rooms, they're saying, okay, what can we do at all possible to get a piece of this multi-billion dollar gold mine? That's why Hollywood companies are pre-censoring films to avoid losing access to that Chinese market. And it's possible that China, through sheer economic heft, may one day be silently directing films in markets across the world. Oh, including maybe Avatar 2. Definitely Avatar 2. <laughs> Ah, uh, well, um, this makes me sad. I don't know what to do because it does feel like the film industry in the U.S. is just, it's its chained to the profits that are needed. So it's just going to happen until something major changes. Um, and it's not a big deal necessarily, at least for most people. And it just means that stories are going to be shaped and changed in ways that, you know, some auteur, some really incredible writer, you know, they wanted to show you and tell you a story, but they won't be able to do it in the same way anymore. I don't know. That's kind of messed up. Well, also, you know, uh, I do want to shout out the great many filmmakers who are Chinese nationals who live in China now, who work in China, mm -hmm. and they're making amazing stuff. Uh, it, it just, you know, it causes you to wonder what they would make if they could make whatever they wanted and right now it's wow. a question yeah. that is difficult to answer so uh with that we want to hear what you think is this just the way the cinematic sausage gets made should should film be steered by ideology and profit motivations uh and where in the hierarchy of priorities should free speech occur do you agree with china's approach to this uh, do you disagree? If so, why? Ooh, and if you have any experiences with this, please let us know. Please, please, please. We can't wait to hear some some firsthand anecdotes. Yeah, I, I, I want to hear anecdotes. I want to hear what are we missing? What are we not thinking about in the bigger discussion here? Because I know there's probably a few things that we're just we haven't thought about yet. So let us know those things. You can find us all over the place on social media, on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, we are Conspiracy Stuff. You can also find our Facebook group, Here's Where It Gets Crazy. To get in, all you have to do is know who hosts this show. We say our names every episode. You can figure it out. 
If you don't like social media, there are other ways to make contact. Yes, that's right. Uh, there are several other ways to make contact. Uh, you can always try to say my name in a mirror in the dark a few times. Your mileage may vary. Uh, it might actually be simpler, if you don't want to wait till dark, to call us on the telephone where we are one eight three three stdwytk You'll hear a voice. You'll hear a sound. You'll have three minutes. Those three minutes are your own. Go nuts. Tell us what's on your mind. Give yourself a cool nickname or moniker. Uh, let us know if we can use your voice and or message on the air. Uh, most importantly, do not censor yourself. We have another way to contact us. Oh, breaking news. We have two other ways to contact us. There's a thing called TalkBack that you can use to drop us a, a quick 30-second message. You may have heard uh, an ad for that now it's super easy uh, but we've got ears on that too and if you don't feel like hopping on a phone or an app and you want to go a little more old school we love emails send us those ancillary links send us those pictures uh, you can also you can also have a little bit more anonymity in email if necessary depending on how you do it all you have to do is shoot us a line where we are conspiracy at iheartradio.com Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Live Nation presents Concert Week. From now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 summer shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirks Bentley, Janet Jackson, Megan Trainer, Peso Pluma, Sean Paul, Sum 41, and many more. For way less. Grab your tickets now through May 14th to see all of the artists you love all summer long. For just $25. $25 each. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. That's LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to buy now. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Attention, true crime enthusiast. Searching for a way to unwind after diving deep into the mysteries that keep you up at night? Look no further. Introducing Lazarus Naturals, your trusted companion for CBD relief. With a commitment to transparency, Lazarus Naturals oversees every step from farm to doorstep, ensuring purity and quality you can trust. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today and discover how CBD can help you decompress and recharge for your next investigation. That's LazarusNaturals.com. Lazarus Naturals. Your partner in unraveling the mysteries of true crime. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. Dealing with pests can be a pain, but relax. Terminix can help. Because when pests show up, so does Terminix. With over 95 years of experience, they have what it takes to take on any pest problem fast. If your home or business has pests, don't stress it. Terminix it. 
Visit Terminix.com to book your appointment online today. That's T-E-R-M-I-N-I-X.com.